0: Welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition, recorded Wednesday, April 29th, 2015. That's right, we are back with another interview. Uh, this one, uh, we'll see where it takes us. This might be a little bit different than the normal Game of Crowdfunding stuff, I don't know. Uh, but there is a project that we will at least talk about a little bit. But this is somebody that I have kind of put out before, that people have asked me if there's anybody that I really wanted to interview. And this is somebody that has uh, kind of crossed my path in various ways w- through mutual friends and then uh, through social media, and I've always kind of wanted to sit down and have a conversation with them. So who
1: is joining me on Google Hangout tonight? Well, hello, everyone. I'm your guest, J.R. Honeycutt. I am the community manager at Level 99 Games, the host of uh, Back It a YouTube series about Kickstarter campaigns. I'm the co-host of the Nerd Nighters, uh, kind of the tonight show for board games every week, editor-in-chief and writer at the Nerds Table, and the uh, founder of DFW Nerd Night, an organization that throws board game parties for charity as well as a bunch of other stuff. So that's that's me, man.
0: So, yeah, I've got a guest on. I I finally found somebody that can actually make me look like a slacker. So thanks for that, JR.
1: I cannot take credit for anything, man. I just keep saying yes to projects, and my resume keeps getting longer and longer. So uh,
0: as Jr. said, he's uh, part of Level 99 Games, and of course they have a project on Kickstarter right now, uh, which is wonderful, happy coincidence. But we will have some conversation around that at some point as well. But to start off with, I just uh, we're going to have a, a conversation with with Jr. about various topics. I, I think as things come to my mind. But of course we'll go through the normal warm up questions. So are you ready for some hard-hitting questions, Jr.?
1: Man, I am so ready for hard-hitting questions, Jeff. I've been waiting all week for this, and I am prepared.
0: These are ridiculously hard. I will give you um, up to... 20 minutes to think about your answer for each.
1: Right, cool. I'll, put my pencil, I'll put my pencil down when I'm done with each one.
0: All right. So one of the things we like to know is uh, besides the gaming industry side of things, and you can be as general, specific as you like, but what do you do for a living? Sir?
1: All right. So uh, fortunately, the answer to that question is also a gaming answer. Uh, I am the full-time community manager. Also, I do a little bit of design work and some development work at Level Ninety Nine Games. I do a lot of marketing and a lot of ad copy writing, all sorts of stuff. I'm kind of a jack of many trades at Level Ninety Nine Games. But I'll give you a deeper answer than that, since <laughs> I know that's what you want here. I have uh, I have an MBA, a Master's in Business Administration from uh, TCU, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. I have a degree in finance from the University of Texas in Arlington. And in my previous life, uh, when I was still a muggle, before I was working in the gaming industry, probably the biggest part of my career was as a options broker and a stock broker for a well-known stock trading company. Uh, and I moved from that into doing some production work for an internet TV show about options trading. And then uh, up until just recently, I was a private options tutor teaching people how to trade stocks and options and futures. Nice.
0: So you are one of the people that kind of is living the dream that a lot of people are hoping someday to get to. And that's kind of transitioning into the gaming side of things full time.
1: Yeah, you know, it's I understand that that is in context, like that's what it is. But it doesn't like there's never a day when you like cross the threshold and you're like, oh, now I am happy. Now I love my life. Right. Like you're just constantly you know how it is you're just constantly like doing projects working on things meeting people trying to do as good a job as you can with the resources and the time that you have and then sometimes you wake up and you're like oh my gosh this is amazing look at all these things that i get to do right
0: right uh, all right so our next warm-up question would be what makes you a geek good sir
1: what makes me a geek man so there's there's a very deep answer to this question and there's sort of like a, a very surface answer i guess the surface answer is that I'm a geek because I like geeky things and I'm very public about that. But I think the deeper answer is that like, I'm a geek because I'm willing to unabashedly, unapologetically, truly invest myself in things and love the things that I do and the people that I do them with, right? So um, I'm not just a board game guy. Uh, I used to be a pro video game player. I used to be a football coach. I used to be a basketball coach. I'm still a season ticket holder for the Texas Rangers. Uh, I absolutely love sports. My wife and I go to games all the time. I'm a huge, huge reader and fan of, of books and literature. And in fact, try to find as much time as I can on plane trips back and forth from conventions and stuff to read the various books that I'm catching up on. I have a lot of interests, as I suppose anybody who lives in the Internet age does, and I'm not afraid to love any of them, including some that I get made fun of for sometimes, but I don't care. right?
0: (laughs) All right. And you may have semi-answered the last warm-up question I usually use, but one of the things we like to point out at All Us Geeks is that you can really geek out about anything. It's all based on your passion level. So we always like to uh, ask people. Do you have a geek level passion for something that the typical person might not consider geek related?
1: Boy, you know, I think I live in enough hemispheres or circles on a Venn diagram where I have enough different interests that some people in some parts of my life, for instance, like people who are consultants or who are options traders, think that what I do in the board game world is very like new and interesting and really nerdy. And they don't know anyone else who does that, right? But like talking to people on the board game side are like, oh, man, you know how to trade options, which to me is like I've been doing it for 10 years. Right. Like There's nothing new about this. But I think if I had to, if I had to pick like one thing that I do that I think most people generally would say is weird or is overly geeky or whatever, uh, it's that I used to be a professional guitar hero player and I still really adore playing guitar hero. And I was a performance player, which means that the tournaments that I entered into uh, had to do with on stage performances that were choreographed and stuff. So I'd build these routines and then perform them while playing Guitar Hero. And that's still a thing that I'm really passionate about. Although I don't get to perform anymore, I still really love playing. Nice. So, you know, uh, I
0: mentioned to you before we started recording, and of course I put it in the intro that, you know, some people had been asking me, you know, if you had your chance to interview somebody, who do you want to interview? And I always kind of start off That answer with the fact that I don't really have that starstruck gene in me, if that makes sense. So I, I don't really fanboy about anybody or anything. I just, you know, a person is a person and, and I can appreciate them as a person, but it's not like, and I can appreciate their, their work and everything else, but I don't like sit here and gush over anybody or, or think I would be nervous meeting anybody. And I've, I've met various people and, and I've put that to the test, but by the time I was, Getting to the end of that conversation, your name popped in my head, and I kind of said, you know what? If I could interview anybody right now, I want to interview Jr. Honeycutt. And like I said, kind of in the uh, intro here is because your name comes up quite a bit. We, we have some mutual friends, and it, it always comes up in a very positive manner. And then through our interaction, kind of through social media and everything else, I've gotten that same vibe from you. And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because you seem to have a lot of love and passion for building the community side of what you're involved in. So that was a huge thing for me. I, a lot of times when I hear about either what you're doing or uh, what you're involved in, it seems to like parallel my personal philosophy a lot. So that's one of the reasons why I want to sit down and have a conversation with
1: you. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that, man. It means a lot to me. Um First off, it's ridiculous that you would Think of me as on the list of people you'd love to interview, right? Go interview Stefan Feld, interview Tom Vassel, interview Eric Lang. I'm just a guy, right? I'm just a guy on the internet who spends way too much time on Facebook. <laughs> and on and on Twitter too. But it means a lot to me that you would say that, so thank you. And you know, I'm just as I'm just as excited to get a chance to talk with you. So really it's mutual. We're just gonna go back and forth there.
0: Sweet. Yeah, that cause cause that's what I need. <laughs> My ego needs some stroking.
1: That's right. <laughs> To to sorry to to actually answer what you prompted me to say, we do. When I say we, I mean me and my wife Amy, my best friend Andrew, the community of people here at DFW Nerd Night. We work really hard to include as many people as we can in the hobby and the activity that we love. And I think we would have that approach whether we were doing motorcycling or horse racing or any other activity that was around the subculture. But as it turns out, we all love board games. And board gaming and tabletop gaming is sort of a famously inclusive hobby to begin with. It's just easy to bring people in and include them. It really facilitates new relationships and, and communication really well. And we just love it. And you know, community building is like the first thing for me. I love building relationships. I love making new friends. And I love finding out more about the friends that I do have. And just all of it is really great for me. So I don't know. Maybe it's selfish that I do this, but I love to do it. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, you know, let's, let's just kind of talk about that for a second. Why don't you let people know who may not know what DFW Nerd Nights are all about?
1: All right. Well, I will do exactly that. And, uh, for your audience, thanks for listening to me ramble about this in advance. <laughs> DFW Nerd Night is a community organization. It's a collection of friends that throw board game parties for charity on a monthly basis in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. It's the Metroplex. It's where BGGCon happens. It's where the Cowboys play, and I'm sure you've heard of the Dallas Cowboys. We do two parties a month, one at a, a restaurant bar called Jay Gilligan's in Arlington that gives us the space for free. We have about 140, 150 people every month. And then another party at Dallas Games Marathon on Plano, which is a private board game club, which gives us the space to host these parties for free. It's very generous of them. Uh, and in both cases, we have lots of people show up. We play games. It's always free. We have a great time. And we bring in a charity, a different charity every month, typically. And we invite them to talk to our group about what they do. For instance, this month, it's Head Start of Greater Dallas, who provide uh, early education services for children in need, typically children in poverty, who wouldn't be getting the resources they need before they get to kindergarten, so that when they actually get into school, uh, that they can hit the ground running and and they're caught up to where they should be based on their age. Uh, And we raised about $5,000 this month through our parties and doing charity auction for Tabletop Day and things like that. Uh, So we do this on a monthly basis. We also do parties at Gen Con and BGG Con. We did an auction at BGG Con. Uh, And we're just sort of constantly just pushing to try to have these events. But it isn't about raising money. For us, it's about building a community. And it's specifically about enabling people who might otherwise feel like they couldn't contribute. It's about enabling, making them feel like they can contribute and that contributing, there's a lower barrier to contribution than they might think uh, that there is. And to kind of explain that in a different way, uh, I try to give a speech or I try to talk to the crowd at every one of our Nerd Night events. And I tell them that, while we really appreciate it if they donate money, obviously it's wonderful when it goes to, to really changing lives, to directly affecting our communities around us, that I believe that our community is directly impacted and that it, it really does make a difference just by them showing up and spending time with us, um, that I believe that doing so strengthens relationships and strengthens bonds, and that those are the types of things that lead to a generally stronger community, which allow us and empower us to work together to build something lasting uh, between us and the community external to us. Uh, to make everyone's lives better. That it's not just about donating money. It's about donating your time and your energy and building relationships so that together we can make change. And that's what we do, man. That's it.
0: Yeah. That, that is awesome. And that, that is actually one of the big reasons that I, I really kind of wanted to talk to you because that's one of the parallels that I appreciate in the fact that, uh, when I used to run a gaming convention, we always made sure there was a charity slant, even though I had some people kind of push back about that. I always insisted. If I'm going to be helping to to run this and move forward with it, I want a charity aspect. When I founded Rochester Gamers Community, we made sure there was a charity aspect involved with that whenever we would do events. And even now with the podcast, when we do our annual pledge drive, we make sure that there's a, a charity aspect to it. We don't want it to just be about us. So that was one of the things that really kind of when I found out about it and when I started kind of... Uh, looking into it a bit more and watching some of your videos and all that kind of stuff that really kind of got me interested in kind of having a conversation with you and kind of telling you, you know, and, and letting you know that I appreciate that you include that piece in the activities that you plan and that you run. So that is awesome. I think that is a great thing. And, and like you kind of said, just getting people together, just having the fact that they're coming together and building a community and then on top of that, maybe, you know, uh, also helping provide some support for a good charity is just an amazing thing. So I, uh, appreciate that you do that. So,
1: well, yeah, man, uh, thank you so much for, for, for noticing. Thank you for thanking me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's one of the core parts of, of what we do as a community. It's about like raising money for the charities. It isn't just about getting a dollar donated. It's about introducing people who don't know our hobby people from the charity to what we do. And it's about introducing the people who come to our parties to various ways that they can connect with people who are working to better the community in different ways, right? And it isn't just like, oh, let's find people. Like, for instance, uh, the Women's Center. Um, it, it's a, um, a women's organization um, that deals with battered women. And they do a wonderful job here in Tarrant County. You know, you could say, like, we're just raising money to help people. And like, quote unquote, help people is kind of this abstract concept. Like there are some people that exist in the world and we know that they need help because we watch the news and people need help. So I'll donate a dollar and eventually that dollar will help someone. And I feel good about that. For us, it isn't about that. For us, it's this is, these are the people who are working in our community right here where we live. Come meet them, listen to them, talk to what, talk to them about what they do, learn more about it. That way, if you ever want to contribute more, you can. And if for some reason you ever need services, you know where to go to get them, right? We're creating. Bonds. We're creating lines of communication to make lives better.
0: We're trying to at least, right? Yeah, I I think that is awesome and amazing, and uh, it's it's definitely like I said, it's it's one of the things that really made me want to reach out and have a conversation with you. So, besides DFW Nerd Nights, you are also a podcaster, a vid, and a video caster. So, what kind of made you get into that side of things
1: all right so the easiest possible answer here jeff the easiest possible answer is that i love to hear myself talk <laughs> and that's i mean that's just it we could stop the interview right there we could go on to the next question but if you want a longer answer than that i'll give you one you want You want a longer answer do you do editing or
0: no i do not do editing there you go because so... most of us that do editing hate our voice
1: <laughs> yeah no i do we do everything live um a serious answer to that question um i'll give all the credit in the world here to uh Andrew Christopher, and for anybody that's ever watched our show, um, Andrew is my co-host on the Nerd Nighters, the producer of our show, and is the one who came to me with the idea two-plus years ago, so February 2013, to do a YouTube show every week and just to talk about what games we'd been playing. And then we kicked around different ideas for what the show would be, and it's it's progressed and it's grown as these things do uh, since we started it. But the basic idea was to do a YouTube show that people in our community could watch and they could just catch up on what happened at game night this week in case they had to miss it or what happened at Nerd Night or what's going on around DFW or wherever we're going, conventions and stuff, so that they could feel more plugged into what was happening and so that they wouldn't feel like they were just out of the loop or they were missing everything, right? We just wanted to give people a way to feel connected to each other. And from that, we did a lot of interviews. We've gone to Gen Con and other various conventions and done one-off interviews and had people on our show. And now, you know, we're on episode, we're going to do episode 106 tonight. And looking back at it after 100 plus episodes, we've had just these incredibly kind people, some of the biggest names in the industry have come on our show and talked to us and hung out. And it's provided this amazing platform for us to really do even bigger parties and and raise more money for charity and do even more for communities, for instance, like our Gen Con party this year. So I started because Ace wanted to do it and we just did it and we love doing it. I do the back end episodes because I just absolutely love talking to people about Kickstarter. I think Kickstarter is a fascinating platform. I think it's incredible that there exists a way that somebody can basically just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, make a game and get it out there to the market or in a larger sense, make products. And I do some unboxing videos and some other things too, mostly because I like to hear myself talk because it's interesting and you know, that's, it, that's why. I hope that's a sufficient answer for you.
0: No, no, I, I need you to keep going.
1: That's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think we started it because we wanted to build a community, but we kept doing it because we love it. And, you know, we love having that anchor in the middle of our week, Wednesday night, we're going to do our show. We love to talk to our guests and, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little secret about podcasting, um, or doing a show at all. And you know this, Jeff, you know this already. Uh, but for the audience who's watching, you may not get this already.
0: Listening. You're on a different format.
1: That's right. Um, <laughs> sorry, listening. I'm sorry. I, I I usually do a live YouTube show. Um, for so yeah. this is listening. There's a certain special thing about being able to go up to somebody who you really, really want to talk to at a convention or at an event and being able to say, Hi, uh, my name is JR Honeycutt and I do a YouTube show. Can I interview you sometimes? It provides this perfectly reasonable, re- like perfectly reasonable explanation for why you would walk up to a stranger, sometimes a famous stranger and ask them to just talk to them. Right. <laughs> like. It lets you fanboy without actually fanboying. Um, and from a Kickstarter standpoint, on our at episodes, I can go to a project creator and instead of like emailing them a question about their campaign, I can say, hey, can we just talk for, like 30 to 45 minutes on my YouTube show publicly? And they'll say, yeah, of course, let's do it. And then to me, I'm like, oh, cool. I get to ask all the questions that I have about their campaign and get all of them answered, right? One on one. So it's it's super selfish. Honestly, it's pretty fun.
0: As far as back it, and since you are, do enjoy the, uh,
1: Kickstarter side of things,
0: what is your impression? Uh, first of all, how long have you been doing back it? Let's start
1: there. Uh, I've been doing back it, uh, for almost two years. I'm gonna, I'm gonna click onto the internet real quick and I'm gonna go see <laughs> when my first Backit episode was. But I want to say it's been about two years, maybe a little less than that. Um, certainly long enough that Kickstarter and campaigns have changed since we started doing it. Um, I've done 89 back in episodes and the first one would have been, yeah, it was with David Cott for Lagoon, Land of Druids a long time ago. Yeah. It's been a while, huh? Yeah. Let's see. And, And like you just said, I mean, it has
0: the landscape of Kickstarter has changed quite a bit, even in just two years. Some people, it takes them a while to kind of get around that. But I always kind of say Kickstarter Years are like dog years. <laughs> yeah. Because so much changes and even just, even six months, a lot of things can change and how, how things will, will go and, and what's the current trend and what do you specifically need to do to maybe have a chance and, and all that stuff. Everything is in constant change. And of course, Kickstarter is constantly adding new features and stuff too. That for some reason, people that run Kickstarters have a harder time finding them out about sometime until they're like mid campaign or something uh so yep. other people like myself uh probably you I know Richard Bliss does it as well but we're constantly digging into what kickstarter is saying and and what they're looking to release and all that kind of stuff so what do you think of the changes from when you first started Doing back it and and how Kickstarter has evolved. Do you think it's harder for the independent guy to kind of get noticed now? Or do you think uh, they still have the same shot that they did, say, two years ago?
1: That's a great question. I might run a little counter to the typical argument you'll hear on Board Game Geek or on various Facebook groups. But I believe firmly that the Kickstarter creator, the game designer or campaign manager, Who's willing to put in the work required to set up a good campaign and to build an audience heading into the campaign has an easier time funding today than they have ever had before. Okay. The reason for that is because I think the, I think the number of people who see Kickstarter as a place to find out about games and as a perfectly legitimate place to go buy games has increased quite a bit over the course of the last 18 months as a direct result of some really, really big Kickstarter projects in gaming. And I don't just mean Exploding Kittens. I also mean Cthulhu Wars by Sandy Peterson, all of the cool mini or not games. Some of the queen games that have come in, uh, a lot of Michael Coe's Michael projects. Like Everyone is bringing their network to Kickstarter. And as a result, more people are using it. And that is making it easier to fund. But at the same time, it's making, it's raising the bar for the minimum acceptable, fundable campaign. So I think it's harder to make a campaign now, to make it an attractive campaign page and to get it all together. You need to do more. But if you're willing to do that, I think you'll have an easier time funding than before.
0: I can agree with that statement. Uh, it's definitely uh, the way I kind of feel about it is, I mean, you're right. There's a lot more people looking at it, but there's also a lot more campaigns. So there's a lot more white noise to contend with, if you will. So you do have to kind of come very prepared and very ready and, and have your ducks in a row. And like you said, do, do all the early marketing, you know, the, the pre-marketing. I still continually run into people that kind of think that if I just put it on Kickstarter, that's my marketing. And that's a whole conversation we have to have. <laughs> Right, and, and so, you know, it's kind of I think it's extended the amount of time that you need to be looking at your your project and your campaign and your game, uh, because, you know, the early, the early, early days of and I've said this, I don't know how many times, but it's 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 very true. The early, early days of Kickstarter, uh, when you could have your idea still on a napkin <laughs> and say, this is what I'd like to make if you give me the money, those days are gone. Yeah. And these days you do need everything in place. You do need some usually some art already done, all those kind of things. So I think where I agree with you on the the fact that it can be easier to fund because there's more people involved, but there's a lot more of your time, effort, and resources needed to make that happen, kinda of like you said. So especially I, I think project creators have to come was a little more out of their pocket now than they ever did as well, though.
1: Yeah, maybe. I think it depends on the projects. That's where you get into the specifics of like manufacturing and shipping, obviously, where you're planning on shipping, what you're putting in a box. I think generally the community around Kickstarter is so strong right now. Uh, Facebook groups like Kickstarter Best Practices and Lessons Learned, the Board Game Group, uh, Card Designers Guild, James Matthew runs a lot of these communities. Uh, the community of backers on Board Game Geek. People have uh, not, the community itself has seen enough campaigns go from start to finish and then to delivery to finally have a good set of best practices for what a Kickstarter campaign should look like and how it should perform. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I think now the community can better prepare individual campaign creators for what pitfalls they should expect in their campaign and how they should prepare for it. So things like manufacturing and shipping which you really don't find out about until after your campaign is over are now things you can approach with some level of experience or at least some expectation for what should happen when you're there. And this is making the quality better for everyone. But it's it's hard. It's still hard work.
0: <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I completely agree. In, in fact, I ran into somebody today. Even, yeah, even today I had a conversation with somebody that had done a Kickstarter project in a different category, but Clearly didn't understand how the board game side of Kickstarter works. And they were trying to launch a Kickstarter and they were actually asking questions like, should I launch? And it's like, well, if you're, if you're asking that question, you've probably right. already answered it. I mean, you, you probably shouldn't or, yeah. you know, or at
1: least wait. If you need to validate for you what your business plan is and you need to take time to reevaluate your business plan.
0: Right. But like I said, I, I do think I mean some of those best practices, right, these days, like like you said, early days was here's my idea. I have no art, I have no no anything. Uh a lot of the best practices now are, you know, have at least three pieces of art, but more is better and, and things like that. So that is a, a monetary thing up front that again in like two thousand nine you didn't necessarily need. To get funded. I mean, there were a lot less people looking at it, but there were a lot less projects and the things that were getting funded were pretty rudimentary project pages and, and basically ideas and concepts back then where now you've pretty much almost got to be to a point where you're ready to go to print.
1: Right. And in fact, that's one of the recent trends that I've seen has been away from the types of pledge levels that allow custom content in games. Or things that would require the producer to change the way the game has been produced, because I think people are even more ready now to just send an email to their manufacturer and say, "Let's go!" Mm-hmm. Like the day of the game. funds right, as soon as they get the money in, let's get it out and get it going, right? Right.
0: You know, let's explore a little bit. Um, how did you get involved with Level Ninety Nine Games?
1: Oh man, woo! I didn't expect that question. Thank you. <laughs> So Level 90 Games, of course, is owned and founded by uh, Brad Halton and is famous for games like BattleCon, Pixel Tactics, Argent the Consortium lately, and of course, Millennium Blades on Kickstarter right now. Uh, but they also did a thing called the Minigames Library, which had Pixel Tactics in it originally, and another game called Noir. And I first played Noir. It's a little deductive uh, reasoning spy game inside a deck box with little deck of cards. Uh, and I played that game for the first time more than two years ago. And there were no copies of it available anywhere because the print run for the original minigame library was pretty small. And it was between printings, couldn't get it. And I went to Board Game Geek in 2013, to BGG Con, I'm sorry, 2013. And it turns out that Noir, Brad had made a copy for a Board Game Geek custom copy to be put in all the swag bags of the show. So everyone who showed up got a copy and I got my copy of Noir. And I went to him at his booth to say, Hey, thanks for that. And we ended up having a nice conversation. And I took noir and I played it with my in-laws and my family for Thanksgiving, which is, of course, the weekend right after Con, and had a great time. And I actually called Brad and left him a voicemail telling how much I appreciated the design and how well it went. And that was that. And he completely forgot about that. Like he knew that it, he knew that it had happened, but it wasn't a thing. I didn't talk to him for a while. And then we connected again at Gen Con, uh, this past year, Gen Con 2014. And I actually pitched him a game that I had talked to him on and off. And I kept his cell phone number and I would occasionally call him and ask him for design help or things like that. And he was super gracious about it. Even when he was busy, he'd take a time and sit there and talk to me for a sec. I'd had him on my show a few times. I'd interviewed him for the Argent the Consortium campaign and a few other campaigns. So we kind of had just like a very casual relationship like media to a game designer. And I told him at Gen Con that I had, I had lost my job and I was looking to get into the industry. And I just mentioned to it briefly, I didn't ask him for anything. Uh, then when I got back from the convention, got home, moving into September, he reached out to me and said, Hey, man, like we're looking for a community manager and I love the work you do with the Nerd Nighters and all the community building that you do. And I know you're a big fan of our game. So do you want to have a conversation about coming to work for me and being a community manager? So we did. And, you know, we went back and forth on that for a while. And we ended up uh, pretty much the first thing we did was we went to Essen together and we shared a hotel room at Essen uh, in Germany and had an absolutely wonderful time. Uh, got to meet a lot of people over there in Europe and. From there, it's pretty much just been, you know, downhill, just going and doing campaigns and building awareness and all the things that we do.
0: Just kind of moving into that a little bit, just why don't you tell people what it means to be the community manager of Level 99 Games?
1: Oh, sure, 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 sure. It probably means something different than it would mean if I was a community manager at like Fantasy Flight or Asmodee, right? Where they would have like very specific detailed job roles that you only do these things. And if you need something else, somebody else is already doing it, right? We run a small crew Level 99. We have seven employees, some number around seven. And the guys in the office are fantastic. They're all in Albuquerque. I work here in, in Fort Worth. I'm the only one that's remote. So Brad and the whole gang are all over there. They make games and I make games on the side. And I talk about games all of the time. And I talk about Level 99 games all of the time because I'm the community manager. My job is to put up art on BGG and Tumblr. My job is to interact with fans uh, anywhere that they're talking to us. My job is to go to conventions and get people excited about the projects we have coming up, to demo games, to manage our demo game players, to make sure that our reviewers have copies of our games that they want to review, to make sure that as people create content around our games that I'm getting it, and then I'm making sure the rest of our community can have it. It's pretty much just making sure that if people are talking about our games or playing our games and they want anything to do with us, that we have a voice and we can talk to them about it. That's my job.
0: And so how have you uh, enjoyed that job versus doing stock options and and all of
1: that good stuff? Well, it's much lower stress. I'll tell you that. (laughs) At no point do I feel like doing my job poorly today could lose somebody a million dollars. And that's, I'll be honest, it's a very nice stressor to not have anymore. (laughs) I really love it because... I spent so much time and spend so much time with DFW Nerd Night building a community and talking to people about games and just doing what I do anyways. It's kind of a natural thing. Like it's what I want to be doing. It's what I enjoy doing. It's what I would be doing anyways, that it never really feels like I'm working unless I'm just like queuing up 50 Tumblr posts, which always feels like work. And yeah, anybody who does it knows what I mean, or making like a PowerPoint document or something. It's so nice. I I just, I just love to do it. I love to do the work. I, I really couldn't imagine doing anything else right now. It's really fun.
0: And, you, of course, you kind of off to the side mentioned that you also work on games yourself. I do. I always like to see if, if people have this moment that they can point to. Can you kind of point to a mo- moment where you decided that you kind of wanted to be serious about designing games versus, say, you know, I, I always say as a gamer, there's usually two things that goes through pretty much everybody's mind. Oh, I can design a game or, oh, I can run a game store which both of those things are typically false because people uh, don't 100% understand what they're getting into. But those people that do end up understanding what they get, are getting into and get serious about it can really thrive. So can, can you kind of point to a time when you kind of went from uh, maybe casually thinking about that to when you decided you wanted to be kind of serious about it?
1: I can absolutely point to an exact moment. And I'll tell you the story. I have to ask your permission, though, and I have to ask forgiveness <laughs> from your audience. This story will will involve a little bit of name dropping, and I'm sorry for that. Okay? <laughs> Fine. Okay. It's the consequence of doing a live YouTube show and doing so many interviews is that like you get used to talking to people that are famous. Not that I am. I'm obviously not. But you get used to talking to the Mike Selinger's of the world, right? Or the Peter Adkinson's of the Larry and so as it turns out, I have stories about these people and it always makes me feel like I'm name dropping when I tell them. So I'm really not trying to. This is just the story. Okay? I was at BGGCon again, 2013, the same one where I got to meet Brad and talk to him. And I was walking around having a conversation with, uh, Boyan Radakovich, who does, uh, he's the producer for Tabletop and Tabletop was his idea. Well, we can show it was Bo's idea, co-founder, producer still. And we were having a conversation about game design. And I told him that I had an idea for a game. And he said to me, he gave me a detailed set of instructions for what to do immediately with a game design idea. And I went home and I did exactly those things. And I never looked back. I worked on that game for a year and a half and I'm still working on it. It's a really big game with a group of some of my very best friends in the entire world. And we call ourselves, we have a little game company and we call ourselves Waitress Games because we're serving games to a community, and after BGGCon last year, well, during BGGCon last year, right after it, I sold my first game to Sherry Spiro, who runs Ad Magic, uh, the company that prints Exploding Kittens, and she also runs Breaking Games, a new publishing company, and she bought a game that I had designed in a game design competition that I entered kind of on a whim, and ended up getting like third place in. It was a lot of fun, the Collapse Cards game design competition. And the moment that Sherry bought that game for me, it was this tremendous validation. I mean, it's, it's the year after I'd started actually thinking about designing games and I'd done some of the stuff in the meantime, but nothing final. Um, it was tremendous validation that I that could actually do it, right? That my games were good enough that somebody would actually want them and want, want to make them and want to play them. So I started working harder at it after Sherry bought my game. And I've since, I think since BGGCon, I've sold eight games.
0: Nice. Yeah.
1: One of them funded on Kickstarter. Earlier this month, Unpub, the published card game, which is a co-design with one of my very best friends, Doug Lewandowski in New Jersey,
0: who's uh, one of the guys that uh, I always hear your name from because me and, me and Doug kind of run together, run in the same circles as well. <laughs> oh man, Doug's,
1: Doug is just without a doubt one of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. And that guy is so talented. Like he's, I wish that he would devote himself full-time, to doing nothing but designing games. That <laughs> dude could crank out games. He's so talented. Yeah, I, um, of course, he's got a family, and he teaches kids, and right? he loves his life, and yada, 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 yada. <laughs> yeah, Dub's great. He's just fantastic, and, and a great guy to co-design with. We're working on a, another game we're pretty excited about. So we've got that. I have a game coming to Kickstarter in June called Doug Doug Goose Caboose, which I designed kind of on a lark at Unpub this year in February. And that's being published by Infectious Play, which is uh, a combination of John Gilmore and Jeremiah Lee, uh, both game designers, both who've had multiple games published. And Jeremiah is the community manager at Indie Boards and Cards. I think that's his title. Please don't yell at me, Jeremiah. And That's a little party game. It's like Duck, Duck, Goose, the card game. But instead of running around a circle, you're saying everyone's name. It's a lot of fun. It'll be in Kickstarter in a month. You guys should check it out. And yeah. So that's a very long-winded answer to that question, and I'm sorry. And there was some name-dropping, and I'm also sorry.
0: No, it's all right. And you can say Doug's name whenever you want, because uh, <laughs> he he's kind of known to all us geeks since we did the Road to Relaunch series together.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Well, then I'll tell you, my game, Doug Doug Goose Caboose, that's coming to Kickstarter, is named after Doug Lewandowski, It's named after him. And it came about because of a moment that the two of us had with my friends, uh, Brian and Cody, at Unpub this year. And it's a hilarious story that I'll tell sometime eventually.
0: (laughs) So you've kind of really broken into game design and just kind of gone full force then with like eight games sold and having stuff on Kickstarter and and, uh, still designing like the first game that you kind of started this whole path down. So in that time and with that many games that you've been kind of working on, have you gotten yourself a specific design process that you like to follow
1: or does it depend on the game? Uh, yes. And also, yes. <laughs> so what Bo told me was that the moment that I had a game idea, I should create a Google document or Dropbox, whatever I prefer. I should create a document and start getting my ideas down on paper. Number one, because versioning is incredibly important in game design. You want to be able to go back and see what your ideas are see how they've changed over time and keep a written record of what you've done so that you can make something as quickly as possible, get it on a table and start taking notes about what you've created and design, right? And number two, so that you have a timestamp for when you started working on this thing in case there's ever a dispute with somebody else about who worked on what when, right? So I always do that. The moment that I have a game idea, I go to Google Docs and I start hammering away and I'll get. i usually get like an outline of the rules or the general concept, a couple pages at least of the game idea And then I'll start working on it from there, the specifics, and I'll try to get it to prototype format. If it's a card game, I'll just do it on blank cards. If it's a board game, I'll work with one of the guys on my design team to get a prototype made so we can start playing it. And then it's just about getting it to the table and playing it until, you know, we feel like it's ready.
0: I'm always curious if people have this as well. Do you have a litmus test for yourself or like, okay, this game is done. I'm ready to show it to the general public. (sighs) So
1: no, I don't. At least (laughs) not, not a conscious one. I have a really good sense of what I enjoy, although Eric Martin would probably disagree with me based on an argument we had about Splendor recently. In general, I have a good sense of what fun is. I'm not saying that I'm the arbiter of fun, that I can define fun for everyone, but I feel like I'm pretty in tune to when I'm having fun doing something and when I'm not having fun doing something. And one of the reasons I love reviewing games is because I feel like I'm pretty good at knowing... When a game is working and when it's not, those kinds of things, right? Like the skill of design or the skill of analyzing and experience, a game, whatever. I feel like I've developed a sense for that. So when I get something that feels good, doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, it never is perfect. But when I get something that feels like it's, you know, it's playable, like it could be played at a table with people and everyone would kind of enjoy it and there would be a beginning and a middle and an end and it would feel like a game, then I will just get it out and start playing it and I'll play it with people and see how it goes, right? And from there, every game is different. Like I've had designs where I play tested them twice and then sold them because it worked right away. And I've had designs that I play tested fifty times and then just threw in the trash because it can never get it to work. It just depends, you know. It depends on the game. Obviously, lighter games are easier. Heavier games are harder. But sometimes the heavier game comes together really easily, and you just flow all the way through it. And at the end, you have this cool product that you can just go pitch, and it's ready to roll. And sometimes the small games just you can never make them work.
0: And you mentioned that you've done some collaboration as well. So how does the collaboration process maybe differ from when you get to just solo a game and which do you prefer?
1: Oh, great question. Well, first off, I'm going to answer from my point of view. My co-designers might secretly hate me (laughs) and they might answer very differently than I will. But I love co-designing. I absolutely love it. I have a published game publicly with Doug Lewandowski and Doug is amazing to work with. The guy works so hard. He's so, so diligent. So patient, great guy. I have a game in the process of being sold with uh, Daryl Andrews, uh, the designer of Walled City, the co-host of the Meeple Syrup Show. Daryl is an amazing guy. Love working with him. Of course, the Waitress Games team, Brian and Philip and Cody. I love working with those guys. I actively pursue co designs whenever I can, whenever I have time. And I have a co design with a friend of mine, Diane Bain, I'm a the game really excited about. And in those situations, it's about creating a shared document and going back and forth and sharing ideas and talking out problems and figuring out the best solutions. And the thing that I learned really early on is that even when I think that I have the right answer to a problem, if I'll just shut up and listen, it turns out the people around me are smarter than I am and their answer is better. And that happens so often that I kind of just gotten to the point where I just assume that my co-designers will have better ideas than I do, which is a really good place to be. Like it sounds kind of selfish, but it's it's the best thing. And you know, I would humbly hope that As a team, everyone feels like everyone else is contributing, right? I do also enjoy solo designs. The beauty of a solo design is that I don't have to answer to anybody. If I want to go in and just tear it down and rebuild it, I don't have to wait for somebody else to be available for a quick meeting. I don't have to wait until somebody's done with dinner or, you know, back from vacation or ready to talk. I can just go do it. And I find I find that the games that I design solo are the ones that come together really quickly for me. So I never feel like I need to go to another person and say, hey, what do you think of this? Would you mind looking at some of these problems that I'm having and maybe giving me a different perspective? They kind of start to finish go pretty easy.
0: And how about distance? Has the long distance collaboration kind of been a hindrance at times or have you found decent ways to kind of get around that?
1: Tell you what, man, I do more. I talk design more often with Doug Lewandowski, who is 2,000 miles away from me, and Daryl Andrews is 2,500 miles away from me. I talk collaboration with those guys more than I do the guys that live down the street from me.
0: Okay. So I will take that as a no
1: problem. (laughs) As long as somebody's got access to Google Hangouts or a telephone, man, or Skype, we're good to go. You
0: know, we're relatively close to the hour mark. So how about we uh, spend a few minutes here and talk about Millennium Blades, which is on Kickstarter right now? Absolutely, man. What do you want to know? Well, usually what I go with is, let's start off with, what's the elevator pitch for Millennium Blades?
1: Sure thing. So Millennium Blades is a, Collectible card game simulator. It's a board game about playing a card game called Millennium Blades, where you and your friends are incredibly competitive players in this world where Millennium Blades is the most popular collectible card game. And you are competing with each other to win tournaments and to develop friendships and build these massive collections and become the greatest Millennium Blades player in the world. That is Millennium
0: Blades. And I know early on, you guys kind of got some early feedback before the campaign launched about whether or not this was going to be confusing to people. Clearly, um, it's not that confusing because the game is doing amazing on Kickstarter right now. Thank you. But was that kind of a concern
1: for you guys when you first started getting that feedback? You know, we got. Putting the campaign out there six weeks before we launched was my idea. Brad had never done it before. But I wanted to put it out there to the community of reviewers and the Kickstarter community as a way of starting to build relationships with people that we might not have had those relationships with before. And we got a lot of feedback on a lot of aspects of our campaign, a lot of which we implemented and a lot of which we ignored. There's no one thing that we can point to or that I would point to as saying, like, we definitely changed this or didn't change this based on feedback. I don't know, Brad's a pretty stubborn guy. Like, this is his campaign he's running it the way he wants to run it, if that makes sense.
0: No, and, and that's perfectly, so. and I like kind of what you said anyway because we always talk about, yeah, you need to take the feedback from the community, but it needs to be filtered feedback. Like you can take all the feedback, but you really need to weigh it yourself in what's valid, what's not. You can't just implement every single thing that every single person says because it just won't work. I mean, you're not right. you're not going to please everybody. By that point, if you implement every single thing, you're just going to almost piss off everybody.
1: Right. Exactly. And and it's worth saying that even for a company like level 99 games with which uh, with this campaign will probably pass uh, the one million dollar mark in terms of money raised on Kickstarter as a company for the lifetime of the company. You know, we make mistakes and there are things that we do on projects that we look back at and say, you know, we could have done that differently or next time. Why don't we change this up? That's part of growing as a company. It's part of growing as a designer. It's, it's part of Brad's growing as a, as a Kickstarter. I don't know, a Kickstarter pioneer. And it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be wrong. And it's okay to do something different than what the crowd tells you you should do because ultimately the only person well, you're accountable to your backers to deliver a project, but you're accountable to, to yourself for the success of your campaign, right? right? Like, at the end of the day, the person who has to put in the work, who has to make the decisions, who's responsible for the decisions, it's you. It's the person who runs the campaign. So I say, take every piece of advice with a grain of salt. Thank everyone for their advice. But at the end of the day, do what you're comfortable with. Run your campaign. You will do better running your campaign with decisions that you wholeheartedly believe in, that you've made on your own based on your own thoughts then you will just trying to run this amalgamation of of ideas that you've gotten from other people that you don't fully understand or fully believe in. Run your campaign, believe in it, take notes, take advice, and then afterwards, you know, look back and say, okay, what can I do differently?
0: Yeah, and if for some reason it doesn't work out, then you can relook at the advice you got, see if there's something you should have implemented, and you can always relaunch.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you should always be... Even if you're successful, you should be looking at what you could have done differently. And, you know, like Doug Lewandowski will tell you, having done a relaunch for Gothic Doctor and been successful the second time, like relaunching is not a dirty word. It is totally fine. There are plenty of games out there that people play that were relaunches. Like, it's okay, right? right? Like, it's okay. It's a community where you can make mistakes, come back from those mistakes and still deliver a project. You don't have to be perfect. Just work hard, be honest, deliver a good project, right, or a good product, so you'd be
0: fine. Right, and and I like, you know, there there are like you said earlier, there's the standards and and best practices and stuff like that that everybody will tell you, and in general, you should follow a good portion of them. But there are things that you can mix and match or change up to fit your personal style, like you said. So I I know like for myself, uh, I know you know I worked with Doug and some other people as well. Whenever I'm kind of doing consulting, I'll kind of go through those best practices steps but if somebody kind of goes this piece right here I really don't want to do or I want to do this instead and if if they're that's really what they want to do I always kind of try to flip my perception to okay this is what this person wants to do now let's figure out how to make that work let's let's work that in let's see how can we mitigate any backlash they might get because it's something you know that's really off-base that kind of thing where a lot of people will just say, no, you can't do that. This is the formula. Uh, and, and I really think there is room to kind of look at other things because everything that is a best practice and standard right now was brand new at some time. Right. Was not done in Kickstarter previously. And if you look at somebody like Tasty Minstrel Games, Michael Mendez, you know, he started stretch goals. He started, you know, all these, he's, he kind of got the micro pay what you want kind of thing going just. Uh one of the first people to start thinking about backers before money uh just all those little things and he's always constantly trying something new it seems like on Kickstarter and seeing if it'll work. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I know this isn't your game but since you're working with level 99 games, do you know how this kind of came about because it's a very interesting concept. We're seeing a lot of what I call meta games, and you're behind one as well, Unpub, which was awesome. I backed that as well. Uh, you know we we've, we've seen the Essen games, we've seen Unpub games, and now we're seeing stuff like the CCG simulator board game. So, what was the inspiration kind of behind making this game and and getting it out to the public?
1: All right, so I'll I'll do my best here to paraphrase Brad. But I want to encourage anybody who's listening to this to check out uh, the campaign page, millenniumblades.com. We'll take you straight to there, uh, millenniumblades.com. And listen to some of the interviews that Brad has done where he's answered this question because it really is a beautiful story. But basically, Brad loves card games, loved collectible card games when he was a kid, loved them as a teenager, loved them as an adult. And he wanted to design a game that would give players the feeling you get when you crack open a pack, when you go home and furiously try to build a deck to beat the deck that your friend just built, right? Like, it's something that EDH players of Magic know all too well. Try to come up with a new combo that's going to be something cool that your friends won't expect and show off a little bit and do something amazing in the game. Try to create that sense that tournament players have when they're preparing for a big tournament, when things are on the line, and that the people who just love to collect cards and explore the various combinations and explore the ways you can make decks, to give all of them something that they can play in a game together and to create all the different experiences you get when you are a player of a collectible card game. Uh, and Millennium Blades really does this. Brad has been working on this design for over two years. It's on version 24 now, I think. Fabio Fontes, our artist who did a lot of art for BattleCon and Pixel Tactics, has been creating pieces of art for this for more than a year, and it's beautiful. Uh, so this is a project, that's been people have been working on this for a long time to get this to where it is now. Um, and I'm really excited about it. I've played it a number of times, I've demoed it, I am myself a 20 year magic player and I absolutely adore this game, as does my wife who knows nothing about collectible card games, but she still also really enjoys it. So, looking forward
0: to it. And before we wrap up here, one of the questions I always like to ask is let's say somebody was listening to this, they heard about Millennium Blades, they kind of go over and check out the Kickstarter project and they go, yeah, this might be for me, but I'm just not quite sure. They're on the fence. So do you have a couple things that you could tell them that they could go, you know what? You're absolutely right. JR, I got to back Millennium Blades right now. I might make you
1: upset with this answer, but I want to tell that person it is totally okay to just back the campaign for $5 and get the promo cards that come with it or back it for 20 bucks and get the playmat and then wait until the game is at retail and buy it after you've seen it. That is totally okay. Obviously, we want to have as many backers as we can for our Kickstarter campaign. We'd love it if you jumped on board and got involved in the stretch goals and all the amazing things we've got coming. We've got an expansion coming when we raise a little more money for the campaign. But if you really don't want to do it, I don't want you to do something you don't want to do. Back it so you can get the Kickstarter exclusive promos because we're going to have some promo sets coming from some of our friends who run other game companies that will never sell because we can't contractually. Make sure you get those. And if you don't like it, just hand them off to a buddy of yours who did get Millennium Blades who might want it. And then pick it up and resell afterwards. But please, please, please go watch the play video. See what the game actually looks like. Check out some of the reviews. Check out the pictures. Shoot me an email. JR at level99games.com. And let's talk about it. Because I think Millennium Blade is amazing. And I think that if you are, if you're the person who enjoys collectible card games or board games about tournament play, like this is a game that I think you'll enjoy. And I'm really willing to put my reputation on the line for that. So I want you to at least learn more about it and check it out.
0: That uh answer didn't upset me at all.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't want to be like, don't back it at all. I've never back it. It's like, no, no, no. If it's not for you, just wait, just get the stuff you can't get anywhere else, pick that up now. And then, you know, decide later. It's okay.
0: No, I absolutely appreciate that answer actually. And you're the second person I've ever had on that kind of said, look, don't, don't break yourself, come in where you're comfortable kind of thing. And I really appreciate that. And, and it's, it's a, a cool kind of refreshing answer to hear, you know, every once in a while, not discounting people that come on and want people to back their games. Cause that's perfectly uh, acceptable as well. Obviously you're on Kickstarter for a reason and some people right. coming on aren't necessarily quite funded or uh, they're barely funded or whatever. So that is an acceptable answer, but it is kind of cool every once in a while to hear somebody say, you know what? This is if you're, if you're that on the fence about it and we're good. Uh, we are going to get made, so you can check it out in retail stores later if you can't afford it right now. That's kind of cool to hear.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I'll tell you a little bit of logic behind that. Although every dollar raised is going to make the game better because we have stretch goals that we probably won't do if we don't get to those levels. You know, Level 99 Games is a game company that exists to sell games forever. Like, you know, we make games so that we can then get them to retail, get them to distribution and have them in your local game store. So... While we'd love to have you back right now, it's also totally okay to buy our game a year from now when it's in your store. Like Argent the Consortium, if you didn't back it on Kickstarter, you can go pick it up at your game store now. And people are doing that and they're falling in love with the game. And Kickstarter backers who got it a little earlier also love the game. And we're good with both, right? We just want to make games that people get and enjoy and play. And that's where we're coming from. Awesome, I think that's
0: cool. And and like you said, it is very much the way the company is structured and, and, and wants to work is that you need the retail or after Kickstarter sales as well uh, to, to kind of keep sustaining it. All right, so here I'm going to do the stats on the project real quick. So Millennium Blades is on Kickstarter right now. They were originally looking for $50,000. They're currently just shy of $82,000. So this is definitely getting made, people. Obviously, stretch goals have been unlocked. You can go check out the page. Of course, as always, I'll have it in the show notes uh, along with uh when I ask JR here at the end how people can get a hold of him. We'll put all those links in the show notes. So always check the show notes if you're not sure how to get to something that we talk about. And Millennium Blades goes until Sunday, May 17th, 2015. So make sure you go check it out. Like I said, fully funded. Looks like a great game. If you are interested in playing a CCG simulator board game, they have it for you. So go check it out and see if it's something that you are interested in and want to back. JR, my friend. Thank you for coming on my show tonight, man.
1: Well, thank you for having me, man. It means the world to me.
0: So before I let you go, how can people get a hold of you or or follow you on the uh, social media if they are inclined to do
1: so, sir? Sure. So the easiest way to get a hold of me is just to shoot me a friend request on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at J-A-Y-A-H-R-E. That's J-R spelled phonetically, J-A-Y-A-H-R-E. Uh, Board Game Geek is the same thing. Facebook, just look for J.R. Honeycutt. If you're listening to this show, we probably have mutual friends on Facebook. So feel free to shoot me a message or uh, if you've got questions about Level 99 games or any of the stuff that we do, or if you just want to chat about game design or episodes of Back It or the Nerd Nighters or anything like that, you can shoot me an email at jr at level99games.com. Uh, and I will be happy to respond to that as well. And of course, check out millenniumblades.com for a Kickstarter campaign and check out dfwnn.org. Dfw is in Dfw as in Dallas-Fort Worth. NN is a nerd night, uh, org to learn more about how we play games and help people. Excellent.
0: Yes. And again, I will put all that stuff in the show notes so you can check our show notes. If you missed any of that stuff, people again, Jr, it was awesome talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on. I've had an awesome, Thanks, awesome time talking to you and it's been, it's been great. I'm glad we finally got to have the conversation.
1: For sure. I got a quick plug real fast. Uh, sure. Anybody who's going to Gen Con, anybody who will be at Gen Con uh, this year, 2015 Thursday night, the Nerd Nighters are hosting our second annual Gen Con Nerd Night Party. It's going to be totally free. Thursday night, 7 p.m. to midnight. It's going to have lots of door prizes. Cool Nots donated, I think, a 1,000 miniatures to our party. We've got Looney Labs donating games. We've got Steve Jackson games donating games. We're going to have a ton of door prizes, all sorts of fun stuff. And we're raising money for the official Gen Con charity this year. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. And we hope that everyone who's coming can show up and enjoy our free party and hang out with all of our friends. It's going to be a lot of fun. So please come.
0: Awesome. That will have to be uh, on my list of things to attend now.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And it's, it's definitely a safe place for podcasters. We have a lot of buddies in the media who are going to come. And if you want to do an interview or set up a microphone somewhere, you're welcome to, or if you want to just sit down and take a table and play games, That's totally fine, too. We hope you come.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening to JR and I have this conversation. And of course, as always, I will be back with more interviews very soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you for checking out a United Geeks Network family member.
1: If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to UnitedGeeksNetwork.com where you will find... The Game
0: Crafter official podcast, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to the tabletop game print on demand company, The Game Crafter, and its growing community.
1: The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.